Chapter twenty five of El Dorado by Baroness Ozy. Read for LibriVox.org by Karen Savage in September two thousand seven. Chapter twenty five. Paris once more. Sir Andrew had just come in. He was trying to get a little warmth into his half frozen limbs, for the cold had set in again, and this time with renewed vigour, and Marguerite was pouring out a cup of hot coffee which she had been brewing for him. She had not asked for news. She knew that he had none to give her, else he had not worn that weary, despondent look in his kind face. "'I'll just try one more place this evening,' he said, as soon as he had swallowed some of the hot coffee. "'A restaurant in the Rue de la Harpe. The members of the Cordelier Club often go there for supper, and they are usually well informed. I might glean something definite there.' "'It seems very strange that they are so slow in bringing him to trial,' said Marguerite, in that dull, toneless voice which had become habitual to her. When you first brought me the awful news that—I made sure that they would bring him to trial at once, and was in terror lest we arrived here too late to—to see him." She checked herself quickly, bravely trying to still the quiver of her voice. "'And of Armand?' she asked. He shook his head sadly. "'With regard to him, I am at a still greater loss,' he said. "'I cannot find his name on any of the prison registers, and I know that he is not in the conciergerie. They have cleared out all prisoners from there. There is only Percy. Poor Armand! She sighed. It must be almost worse for him than for any of us. It was his first act of thoughtless disobedience that brought all this misery upon our heads. She spoke sadly but quietly. Sir Andrew noted that there was no bitterness in her tone. But her very quietude was heart-breaking. There was such an infinity of despair in the calm of her eyes. Well, though we cannot understand it all, Lady Blakeney, he said, with forced cheerfulness, we must remember one thing that whilst there is life, there is hope." "'Hope!' she exclaimed, with a world of pathos in her sigh, her large eyes dry and circled, fixed with indescribable sorrow on her friend's face. Folks turned his head away, pretending to busy himself with the coffee-making utensils. He could not bear to see that look of hopelessness in her face, for in his heart he could not find the wherewithal to cheer her. Despair was beginning to seize on him, too, and this he would not let her see. They had been in Paris three days now, and it was six days since Blakeney had been arrested. Sir Andrew and Marguerite had found temporary lodgings inside Paris. Tony and Hastings were just outside the gates, and all along the route between Paris and Calais, at Saint-Germain, at Mantes, in the villages between Beauvais and Amiens, wherever money could obtain friendly help, members of the devoted League of the Scarlet Pimpernel lay in hiding, waiting to aid their chief. Folks had ascertained that Percy was kept a close prisoner in the conciergerie in the very rooms occupied by Marie Antoinette during the last months of her life. He left poor Marguerite to guess how closely that elusive Scarlet Pimpernel was being guarded, the precautions surrounding him being even more minute than those which had made the unfortunate Queen's closing days a martyrdom for her. But of Armand he could glean no satisfactory news, only the negative probability that he was not detained in any of the larger prisons of Paris, as no register which he, folks, so laboriously consulted, bore record of the name of Saint-Just. Haunting the restaurants and drinking-booths where the most advanced Jacobins and terrorists were wont to meet, he had learned one or two details of Blakeney's incarceration which he could not possibly impart to Marguerite. The capture of the mysterious Englishman known as the Scarlet Pimpernel had created a great deal of popular satisfaction but it was obvious that not only was the public mind not allowed to associate that capture with the escape of little Capet from the temple, but it soon became clear to folks that the news of that escape was still being kept a profound secret. 
On one occasion he had succeeded in spying on the chief agent of the Committee of General Security, whom he knew by sight, while the latter was sitting at dinner, in company of a stout, florid man with pock-marked face and podgy hands covered with rings. Sir Andrew marvelled who this man might be. Heron spoke to him in ambiguous phrases that would have been unintelligible to any one who did not know the circumstances of the Dauphin's escape, and the part that the League of the Scarlet Pimpernel had played in it. But to Sir Andrew Foulkes, who, cleverly disguised as a farrier, grimy after his day's work, was straining his ears to listen whilst apparently consuming huge slabs of boiled beef, it soon became clear that the chief agent and his fat friend were talking of the Dauphin of Blakeney. "'He won't hold out much longer, citizen,' the chief agent was saying in a confident voice. "'Our men are absolutely unremitting in their task. Two of them watch him night and day. They look after him well, and practically never lose sight of him.' but the moment he tries to get any sleep, one of them rushes into the cell with a loud banging of bayonet and sabre, and noisy tread on the flagstones, and shouts at the top of his voice, "'Now then, Aristo, where's the brat? Tell us now when you shall be down and go to sleep!' "'I have done it myself all through one day, just for the pleasure of it. It's a little tiring for you to have to shout a good deal now, and sometimes give the cursed Englishman a good shake-up. He has had five days of it, and not one wink of sleep during that time, not one single minute of rest.' and he only gets enough food to keep him alive. I tell you, he can't last. Citizen Chauvelin had a splendid idea there. It would all come right in a day or two. Hm, grunted the other sulkily. Those Englishmen are tough. Yes, retorted Heron, with a grim laugh, and a leer of savagery that made his gaunt face look positively hideous. You would have given out after three days, friend de Bats, would you not? And I warned you, didn't I? I told you if you tampered with the brat I would make you cry in mercy to me for death. "'And I warned you,' said the other imperturbably, "'not to worry so much about me, but to keep your eyes open for those cursed Englishmen.' "'I am keeping my eyes open for you, nevertheless, my friend. If I thought you knew where the vermin's spawn was at this moment, I would—' "'You would put me on the same rack that you or your precious friend Chauvelin have devised for the Englishman. But I don't know where the lad is. If I did, I would not be in Paris.' "'I know that,' assented Heron, with a sneer. You would soon be after the reward, over in Austria, what? But I have your movements tracked day and night, my friend. I dare say you are as anxious as we are, as to the whereabouts of the child. Had he been taken over the frontier, you would have been the first to hear of it, eh? No, he added confidently, and as if anxious to reassure himself. My firm belief is that the original idea of these confounded Englishmen was to try and get the child over to England, and that they alone know where he is. I tell you, it won't be many days before that very withered scarlet pimpernel will order his followers to give little Capet up to us. Oh, they are hanging about Paris, some of them, I know that. Citizen Chauvelin is convinced that the wife isn't very far away. Give her a sight of her husband now, say I, and she'll make the others give the child up soon enough. The man laughed like a hyena, gloating over its prey. Sir Andrew nearly betrayed himself then. He had to dig his nails into his own flesh to prevent himself from springing then and there at the throat of that wretch whose monstrous ingenuity had invented torture for the fallen enemy, far worse than any that the cruelties of medieval inquisitions had devised. So they would not let him sleep. A simple idea born in the brain of a fiend. Heron had spoken of Chauvelin as the originator of the devilry. A man weakened deliberately day by day by insufficient food, and the horrible process of denying him rest. It seemed inconceivable that human, sentient beings should have thought of such a thing. Perspiration stood up in beads on Sir Andrew's brow when he thought of his friend, brought down by want of sleep to—what? His physique was splendidly powerful, 
but could it stand against such racking torment for long? And the clear, the alert mind, the scheming brain, the reckless daring, how soon would these become enfeebled by the slow, steady torture of an utter want of rest? Folks had to smother a cry of horror, which surely must have drawn the attention of that fiend on himself, had he not been so engrossed in the enjoyment of his own devilry. As it was, he ran out of the stuffy eating-house, for he felt as if its fetid air must choke him. For an hour after that he wandered about the streets, not daring to face Marguerite, lest his eyes betrayed some of the horror which was shaking his very soul. That was twenty-four hours ago. Today he had learnt little else. It was generally known that the Englishman was in the conciergerie prison, that he was being closely watched, and that his trial would come on within the next few days. But no one seemed to know exactly when. The public was getting restive, demanding that trial and execution to which every one seemed to look forward as to a holiday. In the meanwhile, the escape of the Dauphin had been kept from the knowledge of the public. Heron and his gang, fearing for their lives, had still hopes of extracting from the Englishman the secret of the lad's hiding-place, and the means they employed for arriving at this end was worthy of Lucifer and his host of devils in hell. From other fragments of conversation which Sir Andrew Folkes had gleaned that same evening, it seemed to him that in order to hide their defalcations, Heron and the four commissaries in charge of little Capet had substituted a deaf and dumb child for the escaped little prisoner. This miserable small wreck of humanity was reputed to be sick, and kept in a darkened room, in bed, and was in that condition exhibited to any member of the Convention who had the right to see him. A partition had been very hastily erected in the inner room once occupied by the Simon, and the child was kept behind that partition, and no one was allowed to come too near to him. Thus the fraud was succeeding fairly well. Heron and his accomplices only cared to save their skins, and the wretched little substitute being really ill, they firmly hoped that he would soon die, when no doubt they would bruit abroad the news of the death of Capet, which would relieve them of further responsibility. That such ideas, such thoughts, such schemes, should have engendered in human minds, it is almost impossible to conceive. And yet we know from no less important a witness than Madame Simon herself, that the child who died in the temple a few weeks later, was a poor little imbecile, a deaf and dumb child brought hither from one of the asylums, and left to die in peace. There was nobody but kindly death to take him out of his misery, for the giant intellect that had planned and carried out the rescue of the uncrowned King of France, and which alone might have had the power to save him too, was being broken on the rack of enforced sleeplessness. End of chapter 25